And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. A couple of days ago, we had a, a, a wonderful meeting. Uh, Chris Pedersen happened to be uh, in the area, and uh, so we got uh, Chris and Daryl Balls and Craig Apple together at our house and uh, and spent maybe four or five hours uh, talking about the work that we're doing to try to help you uh, and our plans for uh, the coming year in terms of uh, uh, projects that we think will uh, further uh, help you make investment decisions. I'm very excited about the things we might possibly be doing uh, with the, uh, the lifetime investment calculator, uh, the upgrades uh, to best-in-class uh, ETFs, and, of course, uh, now that Chris's book is out, uh, I want to work hard along with him to make people aware of his book. I, I really had to, to kind of laugh at the, at the reality of trying to get a, a meaningful book to the market. Uh, and as I opened up Amazon and noticed that uh, uh, Chris's Two Funds for Life uh, was was of course right there, and right next to him on the list was one of Robert Kiyosaki's uh, "Rich Dad Poor Dad" books. Uh, supposedly, uh, he is worth over a hundred million dollars, uh, mainly because of these books. That when I compare the meat inside of his books compared to the meat inside of of uh, of Chris's. Uh, I just think how how wonderful it would be if we uh, found a way to reach as many people. Uh, unfortunately, you have to do uh, some I would call dastardly things uh, to, uh, to 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 build that kind of uh, recognition. And uh, uh, we're not big talkers. Uh, and I, yes, I talk a lot, but we're not big talkers. Uh, we try not to uh, inflate the realities of uh, uh, what we believe in. And, and I hope with, with your help and, and hopefully some podcasters and people who might support us in the effort that we will uh, get books, uh, Chris's books, into the hands of more investors. As far as getting, we're talking millions, uh, into the hands of more young people, I am uh, thrilled to have been contacted by uh, a business teacher high at the high school level uh, out of Massachusetts that is, uh, um, at least is intending to use the book uh, and uh, signing a chapter to each of the students to, to report on. And uh, I, I want to find out what happens with that because if it turns out it's a good experience, uh, my hope is we'll be able to use that method of teaching out of the book uh, to to get more of these books into the hands of teachers and then high school students. Um, I, I I want to address in today's uh, podcast a, a couple of myths. Uh, I don't know if they're myths that you have, but they are certainly myths that a lot of investors have. And uh, in this discussion, maybe create some perspective of, uh, and some slightly different expectations as to how 
the market works for and against us and, uh, and how the market's gyrations play with our minds. One of those myths, I think, is that when the market is going up, uh, and uh, uh, whether it's the NASDAQ or the S&P 500, that there's a, a, a belief that everything should be going up together. I was recently with uh, some folks who use a different strategy than we do, um, and they were talking about how they had performed recently poorly compared to how our strategies have been performing. But it, 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 it isn't that they're performing poorly in terms of the long term. It is they're, they're performing poorly and likely in the short term and will come back again. That's the nature of this business. But when you look at all the different asset classes, uh, they move so differently. And I'm going to give some recent examples of this that uh, I think uh, make that case uh, um, effectively. But that expectation that things are going to move together, so when you see things on TV and you hear it on the radio and you read about it and the market's going up and you're not, uh, it can be frustrating and you can come to conclusions that are probably not so, for the, certainly for the long term. Uh, and the other myth that I think is similar to that, and that is that you look at a particular fund, and uh, let's say it represents an asset class. I've talked a lot recently about small cap value, so let's talk about that. You, you may think that your small cap value fund uh, is, is lagging. There's something wrong. What, what, what's going on here that I'm not getting uh, the return that others are getting in small cap value? Have I, have I made another dumb mistake? Should I be moving to another small cap value fund? Well, let, let's talk about both these major asset classes and how they move uh, together or not, and, and then how within the asset class you can have some major differences. I, last Monday, uh, the market was uh, down a lot. Uh, in fact, the uh, S&P 500 was down 1.38%, and the NASDAQ was down 2.26%. Uh, it was a bad day for the market. And, and, and that, I noticed when I went to Morningstar, I'm a big fan of Morningstar, and one of the things to get a quick look at the market is to go to the home page and they've got the style boxes, the, the nine style boxes, and it will show uh, how each of those styles, what they call styles, uh, how they did for the day. Uh, and those style boxes are simply representative of uh, large cap value, large cap core, which is a blend of value and growth, and large cap growth. And then down one level, mid-cap value, mid-cap core, and mid-cap uh, growth. And then at the bottom, small-cap value, small-cap blend, and, and or core, and small-cap growth. 
And it, it instantly, I get a feeling for how the market did that day through the through the eyes of folks who are thinking in terms of asset classes and and maybe shaking their head. Why, why didn't I get that return? Well, let's just look for that one day uh, at the... The, these nine style boxes, and I'll, I'll, I'll describe them. So, uh, so it, it will be. This will be easy, I hope. But when I look at the large cap value, it was down on that day. That the S and P was down one point three eight, and the Nasdaq down two point two six. It was down point nineteen, and the core. And this would be basically what we would think of as the S&P 500, was down 1.51, and large cap growth was down 2.6. Now, that's a big range. That's over a 2% difference in one day of value versus growth at the large cap uh, level. And <clears throat> notice, notice that the S&P 500 was down less than the large cap growth. And the reason it was is because the S&P 500 is overweighted because it's cap-weighted, overweighted to growth versus value. But value did help um, decrease the size of the loss versus an all-growth portfolio. And let's remember, growth has been where the action has been for, for years. Is it changing? I have no idea. As we move into mid-cap, we see that the value was actually up 0.29, up instead of down. Uh, and the core mid-cap uh, was down 0.82, and the growth at mid-cap was down about the same as the growth uh, of large-cap, 2.43. And finally, we look at small-cap value, up 0.23, and the core was down 0.62, and the small-cap growth was down 2.45. Yeah, it's over a 2% difference between the growth and the value as we look down through these uh, uh, the, these different asset classes. And 2% is a really big deal. Uh, and, and, of course, we do believe in the long run that value will do better than growth, but certainly it is not unusual, as you know, for the, for the uh, growth to outproduce value for extended periods of time. Uh, now, that those statements are to kind of give you some some uh, a sense of these asset classes uh, as each individually. But what if we dig a little deeper? What if we dig a little deeper and 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 look at what a, how have the the individual small cap value funds done and why? Is there so much difference? And let me just, if we, if we can, we can look at one day. We can look at one day, but I also want to look at the last 12 months 
Uh, and I want to look at 2020 because, you know, 2020, by the way, was a, a better year for large and a better uh, year for growth. But, but here's what I know about the one day. If, if we look at the Vanguard small cap uh, fund, the, the, it's the small cap 600 value, uh, it was up uh, 0.19. If we look at the, uh, the small cap value for the uh, mutual fund uh, at Vanguard, also up 0.19. If we look at Avantis, and that happens to be the one that Chris Pedersen selected uh, at the end of last year to, to be the, the best in class in that small cap value uh, asset class, it was up for the day 0.52. And that's a huge difference. Uh, and, and if we looked uh, at the S&P 500, by the way, for that single day uh, at, uh, at Vanguard, it was down 0.129. Uh, and, and by the way, notice the S&P was down 1.38, the index itself, and yet the fund that represents that index was down 1.29. This is not unusual. And part of what that shows is that as hard as they try, they don't necessarily exactly represent uh, that particular asset class one day at a time. And the, the Vanguard Large Growth uh, Fund uh, was down 2.22. And just for fun, uh, because somebody sent me their 401k offerings uh, recently, and it included the Hartford small cap value. I thought, well, how did it do? Well, it had a pretty good day. It was up 0.29. Now, why did the Avantis small cap value do so well? And why did the ones at, 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 uh, uh, at Vanguard uh, not do so well, and Hartford was kind of in between. So it, it's, it is kind of, it's interesting then to look at the last 12 months and see how they have done. And the, the Vanguard uh, ETF up not quite 65%. The uh, mutual fund that the small cap value at Vanguard uh, up about 54%. Now that's a big difference. And uh, it'd be interesting to know what, why that difference. Uh, by the way, the expense ratio uh, with the ETF uh, is 0.15 and the expense ratio for the uh, mutual fund is 0.07. So, you know, a lot of people, uh, they like to buy whatever is the cheapest. And um, if, you're, if you're not getting, uh, let's say, the, the same kind of, uh, uh, of, of asset class exposure, you might be missing an opportunity if you focus just on the fees. And what, the, what might be that difference? Well, one real obvious difference is the average size of the companies uh, with the ETF that was up about 11% more. The average size uh, was about $1.9 billion, 
versus the mutual fund is $5.6 billion. So the average size company is much, much larger uh, at, uh, at, these, at, at the, the, the mutual fund at uh, Vanguard. Uh, and, and also, the uh, uh, price to book uh, is, uh, is more favorable uh, for the ETF, uh, the more deeply discounted. Uh, so so the, the advantages of the ETF over the Vanguard Mutual Fund was really how they, where in that small cap value did they fit? Where did they fit in terms of size? Where did they fit in terms of value orientation? And what we know is over the long run, again, we're always looking to the past for guidance, but over the long run, uh, the smaller small cap value and the more deeply discounted small cap value have tended to work the best. Now then, we look at the Avantis now, the Avantis fund over that same 12-month period was up uh, over 77%. So uh, another uh, jump of about 12%. And, uh, and there, again, uh, they are the, the size is smaller. But it actually, by the way, it is a larger average size than the Vanguard ETF at about 2.7 billion versus 1.9, uh, and the price to book uh, is lower with Avantis, um, so that that means that uh, Avantis is more deeply discounted. But the other thing that Avantis does that makes them different is that they also focus on not just small cap value but small cap value that has uh, a better history of profitability. So small differences can, can, can make a big difference over the long term. And the Hartford, uh, by the way, uh, which doesn't have a, uh, it, it's a relatively small, uh, not, not too dissimilar from the Avantis, uh, and by the way, also has a, um, a, a low price to book, so very value-oriented. Um, it, though, struggles with the possibility that it won't do so well because it only has 61 companies in the portfolio. Now, I know that many people, and this is another myth, the idea that if you have fewer companies and you can pick the very best of the group, that you're going to get a higher return. Well, sometimes you do, but more often, the broader the diversification, uh, the better the return, uh, which kind of flies in the face of what we would, I think, uh, normally uh, conclude uh, would, it would, would be just the opposite because smart people should be able to pick the best, whereas when you own, and, and as an example, the... Here's Hartford with 61 companies. The uh, Vanguard uh, ETF is, is uh, 478. The Vanguard uh, Mutual Fund is 969. Avantis is 673. So, so Hartford has something about it that, that 
does increase not only the expenses, by the way, are, are higher. Their expenses are 0.9 versus Avantis uh, is uh, 0.25 and, uh, and the two, uh, the mutual fund and ETF at Vanguard of 0.07 and 0.15. So Hartford is going to have to fight. They're going to have to do better because of the higher expenses. Uh, and, uh, and, and they also uh, are, are going to have to uh, do better uh, better, better picking. By the way, they, they have a, a year to date. They've made about twenty-seven percent. Uh, Avantis year to date about thirty-seven percent. This was as of Monday. Uh, the two Vanguard funds, uh, twenty-two and twenty-eight percent. So uh, Hartford's Hartford's doing as well as Vanguard this year. But um, but underperforming Avantis. But we don't care about a day. We don't care about a year. We, we care about a very long period of time, which is the the focus that we're working hard to get people to uh, to take. And by the way, j- just out of curiosity, here at the end of the week, while I uh, was thinking about the the topic for the podcast, I, I thought I'd take a look at at, at Friday's results because. Uh, Friday was a market that, again, not everything went up and down together. As a matter of fact, large cap value was up five one-hundredths of one percent, while the large cap growth was down uh, uh, about almost one percent for the day. Same thing with mid cap. You had a, a gain with mid cap value of 0.24, large cap, I'm sorry, mid cap growth was down 0.91. And small cap value lost uh, 0.13, whereas small cap growth lost 1.12. And and if you look at this every day, you're going to see this a big divergence in 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 returns, and I hope that you'll take the time to check out that uh, the the quilt uh, chart that we've talked about many times. Uh, trying to 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 educate folks about this idea of using the four different asset classes: large cap, blend, large cap value, small cap blend, small cap value looking at them individually year by year since 1928 and uh, uh, and and of, of, of and looking at them as a four fund combo as well and you're going to find the same thing and and I really think it'll be worth your while just to go through maybe take one row 20 years out of that uh, I think it was 20 years out of the uh, uh, that chart and just look at each of those years, and and remember that the expectation is small values going to make the most, small blend the next, large value the next, uh, and then the large blend would be the worst performer. Remembering again, S and P five hundred is also the highest quality, and higher quality would be expected to make less money than lower quality over time. Just as stocks make more money than bonds because the bonds are of higher quality in terms of stability. 
And, and, and also you'll notice, you'll notice most of the time, in fact, I believe it's 72 years out of the 92 years in that table, that chart, the, the uh, four fun combo is right in the middle, right where you expect it to be. But nothing else is where you expect it to be as often as you expect it to be there. And so I, I recently have seen lots of predictions about gloom and doom and, and people talking like they know what's going to happen next. And when you look at that quilt chart and you think, could anybody have predicted this pattern of things that we see? Could anybody have predicted that the S&P 500 would just be terrible for a decade and then be just great for a decade? How do we predict these things? We don't. We can't predict them one day at a time, and we can't predict them a year at a time or a decade at a time or certainly by the way, we can predict better for 40 years than we can predict for one year. Because one year, the range of the S&P 500 over the last 93 years is a, a gain of over 50% and, and a, uh, a loss of uh, 43%. Those were the, the best and the worst. It's hard one year at a time. But by the time you get out to... The four, all the 40-year periods since 1928, that range narrows to 8.9 on the low side and 12.5 on the upside. So yes, you can, I think, predict better for the long term. It doesn't mean it's going to be good, but it will fall within a range that is much narrower, and the same thing is going to go for one day at a time. That, that difference one day at a time, if you annualized it, if you annualized that one day when the market was down, NASDAQ was down 2.26, and you annualized that, that's a huge loss. That's a gigantic loss if, you, if that happened for a year. So here's where this gets serious, and that is this predicting and uh, and letting worry dictate whether you stay the course or or you should be making some change or all of these folks in the press who who may be calling for gloom and doom. And I'm not saying that that's not the way it's going to be. It could be the way. There's a probability that any whatever somebody predicts, almost whatever they predict, could happen. But that fork in the road is really big, and in the, the we're talking millions, we talk about that fork in the road, and that is the, the fork between buy and hold and market timing. That is a huge, huge decision. A young person who's going to be bombarded by all of this information, if they're interested in investing, they are going to find it very difficult to go back and look at that path of stay the course versus do something about it, protect yourself, or get back in if you're out. I think that's huge. And literally, literally, if you try to use market timing, I believe you could end up with half as much money as you would have with buy and hold. It could even be worse than that because... All you have to do is to make a few bad market timing decisions to have 
a huge long-term impact uh, on your portfolio value. So that's, that's one of those 12. And the other one, I think, that is actually uh, uh, has a huge impact is, is because it combines both the commitment to saving and it, com- and it combines it with buy and hold, and that is to dollar cost average. As soon as you can, as young as you can, with as much as you can, uh, knowing that anything is a good start, any amount you start with and get that discipline and see that discipline working for you, that is going to benefit you for the long term. So uh, I'm, I, I hope that g- helps give some uh, additional information about the perspective, not only of short-term returns, uh, but, but long-term returns as well. We've got some really exciting stuff coming up. Uh, I am so excited in the coming weeks to to share with you some of the things that that uh, Craig and Chris and Daryl have decided to work on for this next year to uh, hopefully uh, in, in, increase the knowledge base that we can uh, help you with. Uh, and uh, we're also, because Chris and I both spoke, at the, um, the the conference, the AAII conference, and uh, I asked if they would please send us a list of all the questions that did not get answered, because uh, it, it appears that a lot of people tried, but there was only, I think I had 10 minutes for Q&A, I think Chris had 15. So we're going to invite Daryl to join us, uh, maybe it'll even make sense to have uh, Craig join us. It might be that his uh, uh, his lifetime investment calculator could help us uh, respond to some of these questions. But I I, I hope you will uh, join us for that. We'll make a video out of it, and uh, and I I we all enjoy doing that. In fact, uh, when we met, I asked, now, how are you guys? Because these people are donating their time, and I want to be careful. Uh, I may be a workaholic about this kind of thing when I'm on a mission, but uh, it is not my intent to do that to them. And so um, I got their full approval that next year they'd like to do one of those a month would be fine with them. And and uh, And I think from the feedback that we've gotten, that uh, you have enjoyed those uh, uh, those Q and A sessions, uh, so we're going to do them. So thank you for listening. There are so many things you can do to help us. I think you know what they are. Forward that PDF of We're Talking Millions to others, please. If you haven't and you've read, uh, uh, We're Talking Millions. And by the way, if you have purchased and read uh, Chris's new book, Two Funds for Life. Uh, It is really helpful if you will go to Amazon and and do a review. Uh, And, and of course, because Chris's book is for sale, uh, all the proceeds go that we get from Amazon that left over for us. They go to the foundation, so you'll be helping us if you buy that book. And I think the book will be helping you. But there, almost all the people will be able to 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 give their review uh, based on actually having purchased the book. We know 
that with the PDF, you didn't buy it. You got it free of We're Talking Millions. They will still allow you to go on there and write a review. So those are very helpful uh, to to encouraging people. In fact, we're with We're Talking Millions, we're almost at 100 written reviews. And almost all of them, I think four of them are four stars or and the rest are all uh, five-star reviews. And, and by the way, if, if you went on there and said, this, this is a, a good book, a great book, an awesome book, whatever, but it's for the beginner, not for the, whatever you want to say. If, you, if there's something about it that you want to help guide people to or away from that book, go to it because every review uh, is, is helpful. And, of course, there are those of you who very kindly donate money to us, some of you on a monthly basis, much appreciated. Uh, and, um, and thanks to so many people who have emailed me or Facebooked and congratulated me on the, on the uh, Clunan uh, Excellence in Investing Education Award. Uh, I, have, uh, I, have, I have been... Uh, just humbled by the feedback that I've gotten. I am, I am so thankful for for having the opportunity to help, and that's what we're going to keep doing: is everything that we can to make you a better investor, help you select the equity asset classes, help you figure out how much in each of the equity asset classes, help you put together the right amount of fixed income and equity in your portfolio. That would partly be really the glide path for the each of you, something we're going to keep working on. And, of course, the distributions, different ways to take distributions and how much. Those are our main focuses, and we're going to work harder this next year to beef up the information in all of those areas. Thank you very much. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.